today we're talking about revival. Um, next week we're going to be back into our study in the book of Luke. But um, in case you're new to Keystone, we have a revival summit planned the end of uh, October, October 21st through 28th. A ministry uh, called Life Action is going to be here for eight days and uh, going to have services almost every night, um, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then Sunday night again and, of course, Sunday mornings. And uh, we've been saying that our, our craving for revival is not really dependent upon what happens that week, uh, although we're, wouldn't you agree we're so busy that it, it's really important for us to kind of set aside some time and space for God to have the, the possibility to move? And so that's what we're really hoping for that week. But we're praying for revival, a great move of God, not a great move of life action, a great move of God um, in each of us and especially across the, across the church. And we talked last Sunday about what that uh, typically looks like when God does move in revival power. We talked about a new, a new love for God and seeing him who he, as he is as a holy God, not just a, a kind of a grandfather who pats us on the back and says, go on your way, but seeing God who he is and worshiping him and uh, connected with that, a new hatred for sin, that there is a disdain for the things that are, are, are abomination to God that, that bring him grief and sorrow, um, but that, that there's a new uh, longing to pray, uh, that there's a new warmth among believers and, and a new urgency to evangelize. And so we want to talk a little bit today about, about the road, um, a series we call The Road to Revival. And we'll talk about the road between here and revival, whether revival comes in a week or in a month or five years from now. What, what should we be doing uh, between now and then? What does, what does traveling well look like? Now, all of us go on, on trips, driving trips, and you're on the road, and you never really know what you're going to experience on the road. Um, we see things like accidents. We, our cars break down along the way and, and um, all kinds of other things. You know, sometimes you're driving down the road, and all of a sudden the person coming toward you is veering over to your lane, and you, you're just screaming out the window, shut up, hang up the phone, and drive. You know, get off the phone. Um, Strange things happen on the road. And wouldn't it be nice if everything would be very predictable on the road? So we were with our friends early part of the week, and we talk about all kinds of subjects. And one of the questions that came up is, do you think that we will see driverless cars in our lifetime? And, of course, we're all in our, we're getting in our 60s and upper 50s, and so it's a shorter lifetime. And, uh, but most of us thought that that's, that's, a, that's a good chance. So we'll see that in our lifetime. And wouldn't it be awesome to be able to go on a trip and just go to sleep or watch a little, you know, watch a video and nobody has to drive. You don't have to pay attention uh, to the other guy. Um, and then on Thursday of this week, Wall Street, Wall Street Journal came out with a, a piece about uh, Mercedes-Benz and their efforts to develop a driverless car. And in the article, it basically said most of the companies that are working on these vehicles are, they're not throwing in the towel, but they're realizing that we're a lot further away from that than they would have hoped, that the technology is just not there yet. In fact, that most of them are saying we're still probably uh, a couple of decades away from actually having that be the case. So those of you who are ready to punt on your driver's test, uh, you might need to learn how to drive after all. 
lot of things that are unexpected uh, on the road. How, how, do we, uh, how do we live life on the road? Um, some of, my wife thinks that I'm, uh, I'm a distracted driver. I don't think she'd say I'm a bad driver. I'm a distracted driver. And that's because I like to travel down the road and look at everything, not just in front of me, but to the left and to the right, as well as behind me if I need to. So I'm the kind of a person that you wish uh, would have a driverless, driverless car. It's like the guy that says uh, he didn't realize how bad of a driver he was <clears throat> until one day his GPS said to him, ahead, 400 feet, slight right, stop, let me out. <laughs> I think Betty feels that way sometimes. So we're going to look at these a couple of verses here in Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. Some of my, uh, I often write this in a, like a card to a newlywed couple, uh, Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. They're so foundational. Um, let me just say this about revival. Revival is not necessarily some magic time. It's essentially sanctification on steroids. Revival is essentially sanctification. It's becoming more and more like Jesus Christ in a very short amount of time uh, in a bigger way. Uh, sanctification being made holy uh, on steroids. And so if, sancti- if revival doesn't come for five years, uh, that does not mean that what we're about to read uh, isn't for us. It indeed is for us. And so read these couple of verses with me. Hebrews chapter 12. Starting verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he is seated at the place of honor beside God's throne. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help this morning. We pray that the Spirit of God would be the one who speaks to us um, through me when possible and in spite of me when necessary. I pray that the Word of God would find its mark in my heart, in brothers' and sisters' hearts here even in the hearts of those who might not know you that will be here this morning. And we pray that the uh, Spirit would just have free reign to run among us and conversely that the enemy, Satan, that accuser of the brothers and sisters of Christ, would have no um, clout this morning. He would have no voice. He would have no ability to move. Um, We know that he hates you and he hates your agenda. And for sure, what we've just read is your agenda for us. Um, Thanks, Lord, for the good news of Jesus Christ that's brought so many of us hope. And I pray that that hope would uh, reinvigorate us this morning. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would read the final verse of Hebrews chapter 12, uh, the writer could have gone right from there to the beginning of Hebrews, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 10. He could have gone right from there to the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12. But there is this entire chapter between Hebrews chapter 11 that goes down through what is often called the hall of, of faith and talks about people who have uh, walked with the Lord faithfully 
even when the promises of God were not fulfilled in their lifetime. Things just didn't happen the way God said ultimately they're going to happen. And so he chronicles people like uh, Abel and then Abraham and Sarah and um, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and uh, the, the prostitute Rahab. Talks about all these people who followed God faithfully, even though the promises that God gave them were not going to be fulfilled in their lifetime. And they followed God faithfully despite persecution, despite frustration, despite um, just the stuff, the nuts and bolts of life. And some of them paid the ultimate price for that faith. And so at the beginning of chapter 12, the writer looks back at chapter 11 and says, since, therefore, we, since we are su surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us do this. So the therefore is speaking back to chapter 11 and saying, we have all these people who have faithfully followed the Lord down through the ages, therefore we should as well. Because after all, we have seen really uh, some great fulfillment uh, of God's promises in, in our lifetime, or at least uh, in history as we look back at Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of so many Old Testament prophecies when he came and died for the sins of people like, like you and me. So he's calling us here uh, to a, a race. <clears throat> I have two main points this morning. First one, verse one, dress for the race. Now, uh, how many of you like to go to car races? Any of you big fans of NASCAR here? A couple of few of you. Um, I, I just think I've been at one NASCAR race in my life, and, and all I can think of is migraine headache. Because I literally got a migraine headache that day. The car's going around, vroom, vroom, vroom. And after a while, I couldn't see, and then I started to get sick in my stomach, and I went down beneath the grandstand so I could throw up without disturbing the people to my left and right. Uh, but car racing is not just about the skill of the driver. It's about the construction of the car. And so a car that's got a body that's fiberglass and got engine parts that are, uh, many of them, aluminum, is going to run faster than a car that's made out of steel, and most of the engine parts are steel. Why? Because weight matters in a race. Uh, it matters in a bicycle race. I got a new bicycle last fall thing. I had a bike for 29 years. And the new one I got must weigh just like half of the old one. And it's so much more fun to ride. Why? Because you can go faster, you can go further. And you, because of the light weight, it's just easier. And the same is true if you're running cross country or track at your high school. Uh, you want to you wanna strip down as much weight off of you as possible. And so you get sneakers that are uh, lightweight. You want them to be comfortable. You want them to be good running treads. But you want them to be lightweight. And the clothes that you wear, you want to be lightweight. Why? Because the lighter weight, the faster you can run. Don't mean to gross you out, but in the early Olympic, Olympics in Greece, they used to run. Anybody know how they ran there? Naked. That doesn't sound like fun. I don't think I'd go to see that race. But they, it's part, part of the reason was because the less weight you have, the faster you can run. And so he's calling us here to the race of faith and to put behind the stuff that, that slows us down, the stuff that keeps us from running a, a fast race. And he says, 
You're to strip off all the weights. It's interesting, the word weight is only used here in the entire Bible. It's a unique word. I don't think he means sin here because he goes on to bring, pull sin out of this overarching category. I think he's talking about anything that distracts us and keeps us from our faith. Things that slow us down, that drain us, that dampen our enthusiasm. Stephen Matson writes in a blog post a number of years ago, it's more true today than it was when he wrote it. He says, our fast-paced culture of celebrity, noise, and entertainment has trumped our ability to patiently meditate, pray, and reflect. We ignore meaningful content if it's boring. The time is money and we value being engaged in the here and now. Our country is addicted to technology and we use our smartphones, tablets, and laptops to constantly interact, but we fail to take the time to process our actions. I wonder how many of us could say that our hobbies, that our smartphones and all of the technology stuff and uh, just our, our, the things that we do with our spare time find it, pull us away from our faith, not just pulling us away with that time, but weakening our faith. And we find that we don't run nearly as well because these things are, are, are weights. It's not that God's saying, you can't have anything to do with this, that, or the other thing. And you spend all your time in prayer. You spend all your time Bible reading. You spend all your time sharing the gospel. That's not the point. But so many good things. Isn't it true that so many of the things that weaken our faith are really in and of themselves good things? They're, they're not evil things. They're not bad things. But listen, Satan has become an expert at how to wean us off of Jesus Christ. And he knows that a lot of us nice people won't succumb to this sin or that sin. And so he can just pull us away by a lot of good stu stuff that preoccupies our time and our attention and our energy. And the writer of Hebrews wants to warn us about that. Look, look be careful that, that you don't let these things weigh you down so that you're not running a great race and then he does pull out the sin piece and he says especially especially the sin that so easily trips us up and back in the 1950s A.W. Tozer who was probably one of the only I think leaders in the Christian church in the 1900s that's still called a prophet he was preaching in a day when a lot of, a lot of the American church was praying for revival and he made this observation. He said, our problem, I believe our problem is that we have been trying to substitute praying for obeying, and it simply will not work. In other words, if you pray for revival and I pray for revival, but we're cherishing sin, there, there's going, one of two things is going to happen. We're never going to see re the revival that we pray for, or when it occurs, it's going to be a blow up because it's, it's going to be a collision between what we're praying for and what we're living like. And I, again, I, I would encourage us, when we think about God's challenge to our sins, my guess is if I sat you in a private room and I, I said to you, what, what really are the sin things that you struggle with? Certainly some of us have some of the biggies that we think about, the Ten Commandment kinds of sins, but I wonder how many for, uh, for how many of us it's, it's simply a matter of obedience to God that might not be a call on somebody else's life. But God's speaking to us about something personal. We need to take care of business. Back in the early 1900s, there was a Canadian missionary in China by the name of Jonathan Goforth. 
It's a great name for a missionary, isn't it? Go forth. He was a Presbyterian. He had been there for about 20 years. And they had had some conversions. Some people had come to Christ, but they hadn't really seen a lot in regards to fruit in the lives of these people. And uh, in 19, this is in 1906, Goforth was concerned about the outstations that he had, he had planted. Uh, he did a lot of work uh, his along the coast uh, of China. But he was hearing reports of the mission, from the missionaries at these outstations that just wasn't, it didn't seem like God was on the move. It seemed like there was a blah apathy that, that marked all of these outstations. And so Goforth decided he's going to do a ministry tour. He's going to visit each one of these places and see what he can do in terms of preaching and praying and encouraging the missionaries and, and see what kind of uh, work might be done there. There was one problem. In the midst of his plans for this, God began to speak to go forth. Now, when, when you hear somebody like me or anybody else say God speaks to them, you should not think, what am I missing in, in terms of I, I've never heard God audibly speak to me. Most people don't mean that when they say that. Uh, I've never heard God audibly speak to me, but God has spoken to me at times. If there's something that comes into your mind that you... It, it wouldn't be a normal thing for you to kind of come up with on your own. Or if it's something that won't let you go, it's just kind of you keep this thought keeps reoccurring and reoccurring, you should begin to ask, maybe God is trying to say something to me. And that was the case with Goforth. Something had happened between him and another missionary, and uh, there was some real conflict there. And that other missionary had come to go forth later and apologized and, and admitted he was in the wrong. And, and God began to speak to go forth about his relationship with this other missionary. And Jonathan protested, there's really nothing to, there's nothing to resolve. He came and admitted he was wrong and apologized. The end of the story, move on. And it seemed like every day God was speaking to him. You're not loving your brother like I called you to love. You need to go to him and make things right. You remember Jesus said, not if you've wronged somebody, but if you know somebody has something against you, you're to leave your offering at the altar, and then you're to go and make things right with him. And so over and over, God's speaking to go forth. You, you need to go to this brother, and, and he keeps insisting, no, I don't, no, I don't. You ever had that conversation with God? No, I don't, no, I don't. Yes, you do, yes, you do. No, I don't. No. Just here's a word from God. This is a word from God that was given to me when I was in Bible college by another student. She said to me, you will never win. I was sharing with her something in my life, and, you know, I'm like back and forth, and God wants me to do this, but I don't. And God wants, and she said, you will never win. If God speaks to you, and you've got a different agenda, you will never win. That's just not about you can win. And so on the way to a meeting one night, uh, God again speaks to go forth. And again, he refuses, refuses, refuses. He said, I was fine when the meeting, we were sit, doing some singing and we were uh, reading some scripture. He said, I was fine. But he said, when it came time to pray, he said, God broke through and the dam broke. He said, God said to me, unless you make it right with your brother, you are going to have zero success on this ministry tour you're going on. And Gopher said, all right, I'll take care of it. I'll go see my brother right after the service. He said it was not only like a dam broke in his heart, but in the group as well. He said, for 20 years, we had never seen one Chinese person shed a tear in repentance. And yet that night, 
when people were invited to pray, one person stood up, they began to pray, and soon they were weeping and they were confessing sin, and the next person stood up to pray, and soon they were weeping and confessing sin. He said, it was, he said the thing went to after midnight. He went to his brother's house to talk to him and make things right, and of course he was in bed already, and so he could, and he said, I'll take care of it when I get back, but he was committed at that point. When he went on this ministry tour, he said the work that God did on that tour was like nothing he had ever seen. You see, when we get right with God, that opens the floodgates for God to do work that we never thought he could or would do. And I wonder how many of us, God's speaking to us. It might not be a gross sin. It might simply be a step of obedience that God wants us to take. And we're like, no, no, no. Make no mistake. That's not a, that's not a fight we can win. God ultimately will win. He desires to win. He wants to win. He needs to win because it opens up such a floodgate for him to work. Verse 2, we do this. He's, not only, he's, he's telling us how we <clears throat> strip off this weight so we can run the race well. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and, protect, and perfects our faith. This is one of, the, one of the things we have to keep going back to, don't we, as Christians? That our job to walk with Jesus Christ is not simply grinding it out, simply muscling it out. And I talk to people about besetting sins in their lives. I'm like, if you simply try to beat this on your own, there's no way you can win. You don't have the power all by yourself. But in Christ you do. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. Say, well, how, how do we do this? I come in here to church every Sunday morning and and I don't see Jesus. He's not behind the curtain over there. He's not behind the screen. He's not in one of the Sunday school classrooms. Where, where in the world is Jesus? How do I keep my eye on Jesus? What's that metaphor mean? Well, certainly it includes reading the word of God, right? We read the words of Christ. We read the prophecies of Christ. We read what the apostles say as the outworking of the work of Christ. So certainly it does not exclude the Bible, but I want to focus this morning especially on the matter of prayer, the matter of prayer. Someone has said, as a large fire begins with kindling of small twigs and branches, even so a large revival is preceded by the prayers of a few hidden, seemingly insignificant souls. The truth is you can be an expert in the Bible, you can be a seminary professor if you want, and not be keeping your eyes on Jesus because you don't have any personal, intimate, ongoing conversation with him through prayer. One of the greatest revivals that took place in the last century took place in the islands off the coast of Scotland, the Hebrides Islands. And it was an amazing revival that affected the lives of literally thousands and thousands of people, not just in Scotland, but in other places around the world. And you know how it came to be, humanly speaking? Two old ladies. Two sisters in their 80s. One was blind and one was disabled. They couldn't even go to church. Christine and Peggy Smith. As people looked around the Hebrides Islands, mid-50s, they noticed that on a Sunday morning like this, in a place like this, that most everybody that was there had gray hair or like me, no hair. 
All the young people in the islands were spending all of their times either in the theaters or the dance halls or the pubs. And the ministers in the islands were growing increasingly concerned that the faith was not being passed on to the next generations. Peggy and Christine heard about this because the ministers knew that they had a ministry of praying and they went to them. And Peggy and Christine said, all right, Tuesdays and Thursday nights, we're going we're to start praying at 10 o'clock at night and we're going to pray until the wee hours of the morning and we will invite you to join us. I can just imagine these pastors. They were probably hoping that these women would do the, the heavy lifting for them. She said, no, no, we want you to pray with us. And so some of these pastors and their elders would begin, they met in a barn these two nights and they would pray while Peggy and Christine prayed. And they would pray till three or four o'clock in the morning. And what happened in the months ahead is almost unbelievable. Duncan Campbell was brought in to be a speaker and he was originally planning to spend 10 days there. He ended up spending two years there. Hundreds and hundreds and then thousands of people came to Christ. We've said before the revival targets believers. But when revival occurs in the lives of believers, it affects the community in which the believers are. Literally, people spontaneously emptied out the dance halls and the pubs one night. Nobody came and made an announcement. There wasn't something on the television. People simply left. On the the night when revival broke through, 400 people showed up at the police station. And a runner sent word back to the church where Campbell was speaking and, and said, you need to come to the police station. There are 400 people here weeping and crying out for God to have mercy on the soul. We don't know what to do with them. Nobody knows why they came to the police station except perhaps that the police captain was a Christian. Oh, yes, and Peggy and Christine happened to live next door to the police station. All kinds of people came to Christ, and yet, you know what? Most of them never made it to a church or encountered any pastor or clergy when they came to Christ. Campbell records in his uh, record of the revival that 75% of the people that came to Christ came to Christ along the road or in the meadow, in the field somewhere. They were so burdened by the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Because of prayer. And maybe some of us need a revival in our lives of prayer that may have little to do with revival down the road in the church, but may have a lot to do with revival in our lives right now. I wonder how many of you say, I find prayer boring. I I do it only because I, I feel like I have to, and I do it as quickly as I possibly can. And I find a thousand other things as substitutes for praying. I wonder how many of us could say, yeah, this is my life. Paul says, pray without ceasing. And he didn't mean that you should pray while you're sleeping. You can't do that. He didn't mean that you should pray while you're talking to something you might be need to, but while you're talking to somebody else or listening to somebody else. That wasn't the idea at all. It was the idea that we are walking with God in such a way that any time is a good moment to pray. 
that we see something glorious and amazing and we worship God for what he has created, that when we see a need and an ambulance runs down the road or we pray for somebody that's in the ambulance, it might be heard that, that we're so in fellowship with God that the conversation with God is as natural and ongoing and assumed as it is with a loved one or a friend or a classmate or a colleague. Keeping our eyes in Jesus. Whatever else keeping our eyes on Jesus means, it for sure means that we're living a life of prayer. This communication with God is almost instinctive. And that we have a set-aside. I believe that has to start with a set-aside time in the morning. I don't know what you find, but if I, if I set my prayer time too late in the morning, I'm so distracted. I'm, phone calls are starting to come in. I'm thinking about the appointment at 9 o'clock, and I have to start earlier so that there's, that there's no distractions. It just can be me and God, and it sets the tone of my day every day. Say, what do you mean? It means that I, I have put, I've put Jesus on my agenda early in the morning, and then that follows as the agenda throughout the day. It's just can't keep my eyes on Jesus without that and I doubt that you can either Jesus becomes the center in revival it's not just that he is inspiring but that he is empowering the words here that the writer of the Hebrews says let us we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus the champion who initiates and perfects our faith there's a there's a picture of inspiration here because of the joy awaiting him he endured the cross and disregarding its shame and now he is seated at the place of honor because beside God's throne in other words look to him be like him do like him but that's not the end of the story. The inspiration of Jesus is not the end of the story because Christ lives in us, 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Christ lives in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. You have the risen Son of God in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's not just an inspiration for walking in faith. That is the empowerment of walking faith. You, you cannot live the life of faith that God calls you to live on your own. I can't. But we can because of Christ living in us. When Mount St. Helen blew its top in uh, Washington State back in 1980, if you know the story there, the, the lava and the ash was so hot that it melt, literally melted the dirt so that bare rock was exposed. But ecologists ha had a, a, a a wonderful time watching what happened in the years after that. How, how, does, how do things grow on bare rock? One day a park, um, Mount St. Helens is in a large national park of about 1.4 million acres. One day a park employee was walking along and just kind of looking, observing the rocky ground. And all of a sudden he saw a spot. It was about this long. That was lush there was green grass growing in it there were ferns growing in it there there were wild flowers flowing in it and that spot was about this high and all around it was barren rock nothing growing the park employee walked back a little bit and he noticed something odd about this spot it was in the shape of an elk You see, an elk had died there, and the organic material of his body 
had created soil in which new things could grow. When Jesus died on the cross for you, his life became the soil out of which your life and my life grows. If you're feeling like your faith is floundering and limping along, it doesn't sound like what's described here. You do run with weights. It may be because you're trying to run your faith and your power. It may be because you're trying to live a lush, productive life on the rock instead in the life of, in the life of Christ. Hebrews chapter 2. Let me just read a couple of verses here for us. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning verse 16. We also know that the Son did not come to help angels. He, helped to count, he came to help the descendants of Abraham. And that doesn't mean you just if you're Jewish. The Bible tells us that we're spiritual descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him, for Jesus, to be made in every respect like us his brothers and his sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. And since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. The key for us running the race that God has called us to run is to look up to Jesus. And then we have something to look forward to. What's the end of this road to revival look like on the day when it finally comes? Let me just reread the verses we read last week out of Haggai. You don't need to turn to them. Haggai chapter 2, beginning verse 18. If you remember the story, we were talking about the rebuilding of the temple. And that had been a kind of a burr under God's saddle for a while because the people had started to rebuild the temple and then they got discouraged, they got uh, threatened, and they stopped. And God says, here you are, you've worked and worked to make your own homes nice, but you're still neglecting my home. And because of that, things are not going well for you. Your crops are not thriving. Your harvests are not good harvests. But now that you, and then he goes here at the end of chapter 2, and he says, now that you have again resumed doing what I commanded you to do, this is what's going to happen. Verse 18. So this is a picture of revival. Think about this 18th day of December, the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. So you're obeying me. That's the point. Think carefully. I am giving you a promise now while the seed is still in the barn. That's where we are. Seed is still in the barn. You have not yet harvested your grain, your grapevines, fig trees, pomegranates, and olive, oil, olive trees have not yet produced their crops. But from this day onward, I will bless you. In other words, God's making a promise. If you carry out my will, you fulfill what I'm asking you to do, the blessings ahead are going to blow your mind. I'm, I'm going to make promises to you now while the seed's still in the barn. You haven't planted the seed yet. There's been no rains. You haven't put fertilizer on the crops. But things are going to be amazing. I'm, I'm going to follow through with what my promises are. And that's my prayer for us. 
that we simply do what God asks us to do and leave the results to him. But make no mistake about it. Jesus is at the center, looking to Jesus. He's the centerpiece, keeping our eyes on Jesus. Often some unusual things happen in revival. Uh, There's often miracles. Uh, There's sometimes some strange things. And Jonathan Edwards has written about um, what happens in revival and the importance of kind of... um, making sure that what's happening is of the Spirit of God rather than something else. Uh, Jesus Christ, ultimately, though, is at the center. And we don't want to get focused on miracles, and we don't want to get focused on this, that, or the other thing. And I want to close by reading a piece by a brother who is a charismatic, and so he would have a, he he would believe in a a, a lot of things, perhaps some things more than you would or maybe even I would, and he reminds us that really, this is, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. All the other things are great, they come, but it's all about Jesus. He said, in order to have true revival, we must have Christ at the center. Focusing on an individual movement or church will not sustain revival, it will kill it. Placing the attention on the gifts of God, on healings, on miracles, and manifestations of the Holy Spirit will not maintain revival. Drawing near to the one, who does the reviving is the answer. Becoming one with Jesus and being transformed into his image is the goal of revival. It is what will cause revival to become an ongoing lifestyle. So whether revival comes or not, the admonition of the writer of scripture this morning, the spirit of God, is keep your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we do cry out for revival. This little band that meets every Sunday morning, 8.15 to 8.45 down in the fellowship hall, craves to see a work, a work of yours that will transform us so that we as a church will never be the same. That it would set our church on fire so that people from the community would wonder what's going on and we would see the revival fires spread into our communities to other churches we really crave that but at the end of the day what we need more of is not this or that happening it is Jesus And not that you have been partitioned out and we only have pieces of Jesus, but for some of us, the way we live our lives, the the things that we spend our time doing, what consumes our affections and our attentions makes it seem as if we only have a piece of Jesus. And maybe this morning some of us need um, to have a conversation with you to put things right. To say, I have allowed this good thing or that good thing or perhaps this bad thing to consume me, to draw away my attentions and to draw away my affections from Jesus Christ. And truth be told, I know Jesus only as a historical figure at this point. I know he died to save me. 
but I've pretty much stooped to just living my life for me. Even though I I know he called me to live my life for him. So maybe there's some conversation that needs to take place between some of us and you this morning. Don't let us go, Lord. If there's some business we need to do with you, don't, don't let us go and simply lapse back into the routine. Again, kind of OD on this, that, or the other thing that really gives us deep satisfaction. My prayer is that ultimately every one of us would find our deepest satisfaction, our um, life satisfaction, our daily satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, who lived his life not for himself but for us, whose, whose desire was ultimately for your glory and not for his own who kept in mind the prospect of messed up people like me being reconciled with you. And because of that joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning and shame, sat down at your right hand, where today he intercedes for us. I want to live my life like that, not for my good, but for yours. Not for my glory, but for yours. Not for my satisfaction, but for yours. Live well, keeping my eyes on Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.